I have a friend, kind of a new friend at one of the establishments that I frequent. Uh, that sounds very uh, pompous, doesn't it? I just want to protect her anonymity because she's a friend and I don't want people to quit talking to me if they think I'm going to quote them all the time in church. Um, but has uh, become a friend, doesn't go to church, really, really nice lady. And we've chatted from time to time when I go into this establishment. And um, just yesterday we had a conversation and uh, she, she asked me, she said, hey, um, again, she doesn't, doesn't attend church, so she doesn't know all the, all the rules we know. She said, uh, you guys going to have church tomorrow? And um, I'm like, well, yeah, sure. And she said, why? Um, that's a good question if you don't go to church, though, isn't it? Because it's a holiday weekend. Why would, you know, why would you have church? And I said, well, I mean, I have my answer, right? My church answer, which is, well, we don't establish or, or forsake the assembling of the saints as some are in the habit of doing. I can quote Hebrews and all this stuff. But this is the truth. This is why we have church. Because when we don't get together in a group, in a herd, and practice our Christianity, we miss something. There is something missing from our lives when we don't get together and do this. God speaks to us in a way when we're here among God's people in a way that he doesn't always speak to us when we're by ourselves. And it's supernatural. It's the way he created us. Then she asked me another question, a follow-up question. She said, what are you going to preach on? And um, I said, well, I'm going to preach on what good is Jesus? And she said, that's a good question. I'm on a roll, right? <laughs> and she says, uh, that's a great question because who really needs to add more complexity to their life? Now, that got me thinking. After all, who needs to add more complexity to their life? Not this guy. I have more complexity than I can handle. And as I thought about the question, I, I was so excited about how it just dovetailed so nicely into this message today. Because in the Old Testament, religion was all about complexity, the Old Testament religious leaders made it so complex. Joy and I were watching a show on Netflix earlier in the week, and there was a, a main character in the show, and he's like, I'll do lots of things, but there are lines I won't cross. And I got to thinking about something as simple as that, and I thought all of us, we have lines we won't cross, lots of things that, that we'll do, but lines we won't cross. And the Old Testament's full of lines not to cross, but then we even had more complexity sometimes Sometimes the way that we're raised adds some complexity to our faith, to our religion, to the ways that, um, that we experience Jesus. Sometimes people give us lines, and sometimes they're good lines. Our parents give us lines we're not supposed to cross, right? My grandma gave me some lines I'm not supposed to cross. I remember both my grandmas teaching me lines, some of them biblical, some not biblical, most of them wise and good things to practice. My mom, who I'm still afraid of and love with all my heart, she gave me lines. Part of them were biblical, things that I needed to do because God wanted me to. Part of them were things she wanted me to do, and if I didn't do them, I paid the price, which I didn't want to pay, and I still want to stay in the good graces of my mama. I love her. I went to a Christian school growing up. Dan has talked to you about the school we went to. They had lots of lines. Now, they blurred some of the lines. They said some of the lines that we had to follow were biblical. In reality, we found out they weren't just biblical. They even had a rule at my Christian school that you had to wear socks at school. And so even to this day, after finding out these weren't biblical <laughs> rules, I still like to be a rebel and I don't wear socks any chance I get because I just have to, you gave me a line that wasn't supposed, and so I, I, I don't wear socks. We have lines, lines we won't cross, things we won't do. And Jesus came to bring simplicity to all of the complexity, to erase the spider web of lines given to us by culture and tradition. 
and even Old Testament law. Peace is not complex. Joy is not complicated. Love, one of the simplest of all things. Jesus came to ruthlessly eliminate the complexity of religion so that we can truly experience the person he designed for us to be. So today I'm gonna be talking to you about a simple question. It's a one-off sermon, which I kinda like. Uh, You may like it or you may not know what I'm talking about. We just got done with a series that we worked on for about eight weeks. And so today is just a message that'll stand alone, but it comes straight from the word of God. It's timeless. It's something that that God himself wanted us to understand and to know. Comes through the pen of a human author with personality sort of imposed, but absolutely uh, every word is true and accurate. I believe that it's the sole authority for what we believe and what we do. And we're gonna dive in today talking about the book of Hebrews and we're gonna be talking about what good is Jesus. We're gonna be looking at Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. And together, I believe that if we lean in, you're gonna hear some things that will help change the way we view our world. It'll change the way we live. Let's read this together. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we possess. Now, I put in here in parentheses, past decisions. Uh, This passage here, as we read this, is going to sound complex. And the problem is that that the English translations of Scripture, I'm going to come down here and see if you guys are still paying attention. I can't see that well with the spotlights in my eyes. The English translations of Scripture sometimes seem a little complicated. They get wordy. But the original language, the Greek and the Hebrew, is not at all complicated or complex. It's extremely simple. In fact, it was written on a level that most sixth graders could understand. But when it's translated into English, sometimes the the thoughts are a little bit more complicated and and compound. And and even in an NIV translation like this, it just begs some explanation. And so what, what we have to do, what I have to do as a preacher is to try to break it down and explain it. The Word of God is not boring. Preachers are boring. The Word of God is amazing. It's alive. We try it on. We wear it. It changes the way we live. It is true, has been true, and always will be true. But I'm going to work hard today to try to explain this to you so that you stay with me. This first phrase here, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest, we'll talk about it in a second, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the past decisions, to the faith that we possess. Now, the assumption here is that many of us have become believers at some point in our lives. Some of you here perhaps have not yet made a decision to follow Christ. If that's the case, I'm really happy you're here. But I'm going to assume that many of us in here have made decisions to follow Jesus. You have accepted a set of facts. You have decided to believe these things and you've made a decision to point your life in a Godward direction, allowing God to be in charge. But it is a past decision that we've made. I believe that every person is responsible for making this decision once in their life. For many people, it's a process leading up to this decision, but everybody has to come to the point where they take all of themselves and give it to Jesus, and that's called salvation, becoming a Christian or deciding to be a follower of Jesus. For some, it happened when you were six years old at a vacation Bible school. For some, at 42 years old, when maybe you realized that what you understood about God was very complicated and maybe in some cases man-made that there were all kinds of lines that you believed and were told to believe, but none of them pointed to Jesus, and it became clear. So you make a decision to follow Christ. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us to hold firmly to this, hold firmly to the past decisions that you've made, but don't just look at the past. 
Because your testimony is not what happened to you when you were six or 42. Your testimony is about what God's doing in your life right now. The simplicity that Jesus brings through peace, joy, and love. True happiness. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Put a pin in that one. We're going to come back to that as point number two. Then let us approach. This is the future commitment. What do we do with our faith? I made this decision in the past. What good is it right now? Where am I heading? Where am I pointing? Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Yesterday, I found myself in a time of need where I needed a little help. I didn't even know it, didn't know it was going to happen. I guess if we knew it was going to happen, many times we would avoid the help that we needed. Got a phone call yesterday morning. It was one of those days that just didn't go the way that you anticipated. You ever have a day like that? You get up and you look at your to-do list and it's kind of empty and you figure you're going to knock some errands out and get some stuff done, but not really, you know, you just aren't, aren't real sure what's going to happen and the day just did not go at all like we had anticipated. We thought we'd have a pretty chill day, but in fact, we had a really busy day. And it really began with a phone call from Pastor Jared, who said, when I answered the phone, um, he said, hey, I noticed that your side yard doesn't have any grass in it. And I was like, Jared, that's not a very nice thing for you to call me and tell me on a Saturday. I get it. It's behind a privacy fence. Nobody sees it. The part that everybody sees is fine. It's got lots of grass. And, uh, but Jared, he wasn't calling just to point it out. He was calling to solve a problem. He said, Crystal and I, we've cut out a section in our backyard. Now you should know about Pastor Jared, uh, that he has one of the best yards in all of Ankeny. I would say it's the best one I've seen. I'm not a yard judge, um, but as far as green, oh, it's green, it's long. He grows it out like six inches. It's like Samson grass. It's very cushiony and soft and it's just a nice yard. Mine has Johnston grass and dandelions. In fact, I said, I can't take your sod and put it in my yard unless it has some Johnston grass and dandelions, it won't go. It would look crazy to have this patch of green in the middle of all the brown and it's not quite that bad. But he said, hey, I got some sod for you if you want it. Now, I didn't want it, it sounded like work to me. But my wife, I had him on, I had him on speaker and Joy's like, yes, we want it. And, uh, and so sure enough, we got the sod. But uh, I figured the Christian thing to do would be to go over and help him load it up in the trailer and haul it to my house, not just expect it to magically appear in my yard. And so Joy and I went over, well, I went over to help, Joy went over to watch us load some side. So when we got there, Crystal and Jared, I mean, they were working and Crystal's a stud. I mean, that, that girl can work. I mean, she's lifting these big old things of, of side and tossing them in and Jared and I are doing the best we can. It had three stages, right? Just three steps. First step is you take a wheelbarrow. Well, and by the way, they have a wheelbarrow that's a politically correct wheelbarrow. It's, I've never seen anything like it in my life. I grew up with wheelbarrows that have one wheel and usually it's only half full of air. And so it really makes it challenging. You know, they have a wheelbarrow with two wheels in the front and it had a helmet and safety goggles that came with it. <laughs> I didn't wear the helmet and safety goggles, but I've rolled this wheelbarrow over and that's step one. Step two is you pick up these big rolls aside, put them in the wheelbarrow, step two, push the wheelbarrow back to the trailer and put them in the trailer. How easy could it possibly be? Anybody could do it except me. I loaded up the wheelbarrow, decided I was going to go backwards because it was a whole lot easier going backwards than forwards. So I'm pulling the wheelbarrow across the yard. Didn't see the roll of sod behind me. And so I tripped over the roll of sod behind me and I fell and Crystal let out a, a little, not a scream, but a, like, a, like a squeal thinking he's 52, he's broken his hip. I'm going to have to preach tomorrow. That's what she was thinking. 
and I'm laying on the grass with my feet up in the air, trying to be smooth, right? Trying to get up like I meant to do it. And there's no way to be smooth when you do that. I just said, I fell over. It was obvious everybody knew, got up and unload. I couldn't even walk across the grass and unload. Couldn't even get through step two. Well, Jesus went through three steps, three stages to set this all up, to make it possible for us to have a relationship with him. All three, he had to go through all three. The Old Testament priests had to go through these, these stages symbolically every year. Yom Kippur, once a year, had to make blood sacrifices for the people. They had to pass through three stages that were really important. They had to go into the outer court of the temple, which was no big deal. You and I could go to the outer courts. Then they had to go to the holier place. It's called different things. Hebrew translates it in a way that's holier than the outer courts, but not holy of holies. And then they'd have to pass into the holy of holies, the very center of the temple. Once a year, Yom Kippur, they would have to present a blood sacrifice. They would have to put the blood sacrifice on the throne of judgment, which by the way, was next to the Ark of the Covenant. And um, it was a zero sum game. Being a priest was not something you would wanna do. If you did it wrong, you died. They uh, put bells on the bottom of the priest's robe and the priest's assistants tied a rope to their foot and the priest would go into the outer courts, no big deal, into the holier place, not a big deal, then into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of the presence of God was. There was no seat in there, you couldn't sit down, you had to do exactly what God told you to do and if you didn't do it, you died. Not only that, but if your heart wasn't right, gone. The assistants would sit there and they'd listen for the bells of the priest. If they didn't hear the bells, <laughs> they'd put the rope on their shoulder and drag another priest out, right? Because that's what happened. And it happened every single year to temporarily pay the price, to pay this sacrifice for, for sins, for human sins. Well, Jesus, the great high priest, ascended into heaven and he did something similar. Hebrews, again, tells us the sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. It's one of my favorite passages to preach. I won't do that right now. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, this is a really important passage. Hebrews talks about this a lot, but there was a throne there was a throne that all of the Old Testament Jews considered to be the throne of judgment and God had revealed himself in the Old Testament to sometimes be terrifying and unapproachable. In Exodus, there's a passage where Moses is meeting with God on the mountain and God creates fire and earthquake and smoke and shakes the very mountain and he calls Moses up and he says, lean in and listen. Tell the people not to come because if they come and try to find me, they will surely die. It was a throne that the Jews had associated with judgment, knowing that we didn't deserve mercy and just hoping to temporarily pacify God's judgment until Jesus could come onto the scene. So when the Bible says that Jesus is the greatest high priest and says he ascended into heaven, 2 Corinthians talks about three different levels of heaven. And I don't want to get too crazy, but I just want to explain to you symbolically what um, the Bible talks about. The first layer of heaven. And by the way, when Jesus ascended, it was after his death, his crucifixion, after his resurrection. And it was about six weeks after his resurrection that he ascended into heaven. The disciples were standing there with him on the mountain. Jesus was gone. They were looking up in the air. Jesus had told them, I'll come back the same way that I went. They didn't know when, but the Bible tells us that he went, of course, through the first heaven. 
The first heaven is sky and earth atmosphere. Again, this is symbolic. We don't know exactly how it all works. It's the way that a human author described supernatural spiritual truths. The second heaven, outer space, the stars and the planets. That makes sense, right? The third heaven is the place where God lives, God's dwelling place beyond all the other heavens. And so this is what the Bible tells us. This is the reason we can hang on to this belief, this faith that we have. It's the reason we can enjoy the simplicity of a relationship with Jesus and not the complexity of religion that existed in the Old Testament or perhaps the religion you've been handed throughout your life. Because Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death once and for all. And when he ascended into heaven on God's right hand was this throne that the Jews had associated with judgment for so long. And Jesus walked over, again, this is symbolic, and sat down, and as he was seated on this throne, it was no longer the throne of judgment, it was the throne of mercy or grace for anyone who comes to God the Father through Jesus. And friends, that's good news because the debt had been paid, the price had been satisfied so that you and I could be saved by grace through our faith. Nothing we had to do could earn it or work our way or get there. All we had to do was to simply put our faith in Christ, to ask forgiveness for our sins and pledge to follow him and follow him as best we can from now until we leave this life behind. So Jesus, Jesus did all the work. And then secondly, what good is Jesus? Jesus identifies with us. Now this begs some explanation. It's a hard one for me. I've always struggled with this and I wanna talk to you a little bit about it because I think it's really important. The Bible says, for we do not have a high priest and the high priest is, is referring to Jesus being the greatest high priest, the high priest of all high priests, the last high priest. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every single way just as we are, yet he didn't sin. New concept here for these guys. The Greeks believed that God was apathetic, that he couldn't be affected by the human condition. The Stoics believed that God really existed in between the material and the spiritual world and wasn't affected by either. The Jews preoccupied with the fact that God was vengeful that he was like a policeman in the sky waiting for you to break a law so that he could smote or smite or smack or whatever it is that God would do. And the Bible is describing Jesus as so different, so revolutionary, so simple, but so profound. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to connect with us, but we have one who's been tempted in every way like we are, but hasn't sinned. And I can't imagine Jesus being tempted because I fall back to my old ways. When I think about Jesus as somebody who walked through life, feet not quite touching the ground, a glow about him, around people, but not really among people, not relatable, the kind of person who you'd always want to be on your A game around, given the right answers to, you know, straightening your clothes and making sure that everything's squared away, like you're meeting with your boss all the time. The Bible says, not Jesus. He never sinned. He was 100% God and 100% man. But he was among the people and experienced what it is to experience life. 
And he didn't sin. And I'm like, well, what could Jesus possibly experience? Well, in three different places in the New Testament, the Bible talks about some temptations of Jesus. It talks about three different temptations where Jesus came face to face with Satan himself. And it's hard for me to relate to coming face to face with Satan. Certainly, I've never been to a situation like Jesus was where God, through the Holy Spirit, led Jesus all the way out into the wilderness to a place where there were barren rock cliffs, desert soil, snakes and scorpions. I mean, it was a desolate wilderness where he fasted for 40 days. The Bible says at the end of the 40 days, he was hungry. He came face to face with Satan who'd already defeated Adam and now going one-on-one with Jesus thinking that he may have a chance to win, although you and I knowing that there's no way because we know how the story ends. The first temptation that he gave Jesus, Satan, is he says, why don't you take this stone and turn it into bread? You're hungry. And you may think, well, that's not really relating to me. I've never turned anything into bread. Certainly can't turn a rock into bread. Jesus did it all the time. I mean, he turned, you know, all kinds of stuff into food and multiplied food and did all kinds of things by feeding people. I mean, the Bible's full of it. But the temptation was very subtle. The temptation was... Jesus, do you really believe that God the Father loves you? Because you don't even have what you need right now. And if God was paying attention, he'd give you what you need. If God loves you, you wouldn't be without. You wouldn't be uncomfortable. It was the temptation to doubt God's love. Now all of a sudden, friends, I relate. Now I got my attention back before. I'm like, that's just between Jesus and God. Now here I am leaning in going, all right, this is me. I have been in in situations where I'm tempted to doubt God's love. Maybe you are too, but it doesn't stay there. The second temptation was equally as hard to understand, but yet just as powerful and personal when we explain it. Satan said to Jesus as he took him up on a high place and showed him all the regions of the world, most powerful regions. He said, I'll make you the boss. You say, well, how could Satan do that? Well, he couldn't really do it. I mean, 1 John says that Satan is the ruler of this world, but he didn't have like full control. He couldn't just be all of a sudden, okay, you're the boss. I mean, but still, it was a temptation, and Jesus was tired. He'd been tired. Sometimes Satan comes, attacks, tempts at our worst possible time. The times when we don't think our prayers are being heard, when we feel like we're at the end of our rope, We want to quit. And he came and said, I'll give you all of this. Well, Jesus answered him with scripture and said, no, not interested. And the temptation wasn't just to be the boss. The temptation was to doubt God's plan in life. Because God the Father had laid out the plan for Jesus and instructed Jesus to follow exactly as God the Father revealed through the Holy Spirit. But to doubt, does God really have a plan? Does he really care about me? If I live this way, is it going to accomplish anything or am I gonna be living the biggest cosmic joke in the universe? And Jesus looked Satan straight in the face, said, this is who I am, this is who I love, I'm staying. How many of us have had times in our life where we've doubted God's, God's plan? I know I have. Jesus went through it, and he gets it, and he relates. Number three, Satan 
tempted Jesus to take himself up on a 365-foot cliff, throw himself off, and survive. Now, we can't do that. I'd die. I almost died from a three-foot wheelbarrow yesterday. 365 feet, plenty, plenty to kill me. There was some Old Testament prophecy kind of tied in. It was very deceptive and very subtle. But Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. And the temptation here, now there are many different ways to interpret this, but it was to doubt God's timing. To say, you know what, God? This is what I want, and I want it now. And so I'm gonna go get it and do it and you're gonna bless me. It's the temptation to put God in our box and decide that because we want something or agree with something, God does too. How many of us have struggled with that in our lives? All of us could raise our hands. Jesus went through this at one of the lowest physical points anybody could possibly be, yet did not sin. Jesus identifies. Not a distant, removed, ethereal, otherworldly kind of a God, but the God who was called Emmanuel, God with us. So we move on to point number three, still trying to answer the question, what good is Jesus? And let's talk about what this means to us as we project forward in our lives, how we live today, how we face tomorrow, where do we go from here? Then let us approach God's throne. Now, you know about this throne by now, right? Because you've unlocked the secret. You understand how simple it is, even though it seems complicated. It was the throne that symbolized judgment. Now it symbolizes mercy and grace, right? You understand. Let us approach God's throne of grace with what? Let us approach God's grace with what? Somebody please read it. Come on. You're going to make me come down here again. I can see you now. (laughs) Confidence. Not with shaky knees, trepidation, with a rope tied to your leg and bells on your dress. Not worrying that if we're not perfect that we're going to pay. Let us approach the throne where Jesus has taken his seat that used to be the judgment seat and now is the seat of mercy and grace. Let's approach it with confidence as his children. So why? That we may receive mercy and find grace. Now let's read this next part together. It's gonna start with the word to. You guys ready? Okay, not yet. I'm gonna go ahead and read the first part again and then when we get to the word to in the last line, we're all gonna read it out loud. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, friends, as we conclude, I want to help us establish what our time of need is because oftentimes you and I get this wrong. This is one of the greatest secrets. It's not really a secret. We just seem to keep it a secret because we don't live it. We think that we only need Jesus when we're in trouble and we don't realize we're in trouble oftentimes until it's too late. Jesus is a last resort He's our contingency plan. He's our exit strategy. He's our genie in the lamp, and we're down to our third wish. We're going to live our life the way we want to live our life, expecting God to bless us on our timeline and according to our terms. And if he doesn't, we're going to challenge his love and question who he is. And what we have to realize is that every single day is our time of need because you and I are desperately sinful, and we have to have a current 
and personal and close walk with Jesus. There's no judgment because Jesus atoned. There's no indifference because Jesus understands. There's no problem because Jesus gives the grace we need. Why do we go so many places besides the throne? Where have you been? Where have you run besides Jesus in your time of need? Where are you now besides Jesus in your time of need? Why not now run to Jesus in our time of need? How do we do it? We acknowledge that every day is a time of need. I don't just need Jesus to solve my problems. I need Jesus to fill my life with hope and meaning. I need to have a purpose. I need his help to keep me from sin because if I try to do it myself, I don't make it very long. I need him to be able to show me the world around me to see the world like Jesus sees it because I miss opportunities. I don't see people. I don't see, I need him. So what do we do? How do we do it? We wake up in the morning and we say, God, I need you. Forgive me for the ways I've failed you. Forgive me for the things in my heart or my life that may not be right. Remove anything in me, any thought or action or attitude, the self-righteousness, the self-sufficiency, the ego, the preoccupation with our own agenda. Forgive me for it. Change my worldview to your worldview. Let me want the things you want, not the things that I necessarily think I want. And let's make today count. And then you begin to live a life of beautiful simplicity with a relationship with Jesus that guarantees that we live a life full of peace, joy, understanding what it's like both to love and be loved. And friends, here it is when you get to the end, whether it's tomorrow or 50 years from now, you die without regret. You shut your eyes at that last moment where your biological life fails you and you instantly awaken to the reality of heaven. You see Jesus Christ with his arms outstretched saying, welcome home, you were good and you were faithful. Who doesn't want that? Are you gonna meet? You're gonna have church tomorrow? Yeah, we sure are. Why? Because of this. What good is Jesus? Man. So I'm gonna pray for you. You pray for each other. Pray for me. Let's pray for us that we can be a church who lives this way. Father, thank you for my friends. 